The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Let's pray. Father, you gather us together here to sit as a family gathered around your throne to to see you and to worship you, to be changed by you, to become more like you, more like your perfect image in your Son. We say thank you for gathering us here. Thank you for purposing to do that, to change us. And we ask you then to carry that out, to stretch out your hand, to touch your people and change us. To draw out from us worship that you would be honored. But Lord, that's what we actually delight to do is to to see you and to worship you. Draw out worship for yourself and for us change how we think about how we walk in this world so that we would walk in ways that honor you so that we would walk in ways that are fruitful and profitable delightful for us change us we ask for you and for us teach our minds so that we would think thoughts about you that are appropriate and right that that you would be, as you are, lifted up in our minds and honored in that way. And, and so that our minds would be filled with truth and that we would be set free by that truth. So, so teach us and illumine our minds for your honor and for our good. We need your grace for this, Lord, to be changed in how we walk and how we think, what we say and how we worship how we respond to you. We we look to you for this change. Ask you to pour out your grace on us to make us different. Lord, use the passage before us today towards that end. It's an unusual passage in some ways. Make it clear. Make the details clear so that they don't confuse us. Spirit of God, would you do that? Would you make clear the text today? And I also ask you to to move us with it, to call us to repentance, to call us to faith, and to call us to wonder and to thanksgiving. Use this text from thousands of years ago here in this day amongst us, your people, and build us. We look to you, Father, Son, and Spirit, Father, would you be pleased to pour out your Spirit on this place, now in this moment, to turn our hearts and our minds to you and to great things that are marvelous and far above us and far beyond us. It is so, oh God, it is so common and it is so easy for us to think about and for people like me to talk about things of of the ages as if they are common 
things of unfathomable depth and import as if they are ordinary. So Spirit of God, Father, would You send Your Spirit on us and Spirit of God, would You affect change, an illumining change that is then a a walking and thinking and worshiping change. Show us the magnitude of what, what we are touching when we talk about these things and think about these things. Open our eyes, Lord, and help us to behold wonderful things here. Give us grace, we pray. Make us the church that you want us to be, we pray. For the honor of Christ, we pray it. Amen. We turn our attention this morning to 1 Samuel chapter 28, where the scene now shifts to Saul, King Saul. Last week, as we saw in chapter 27, David finally tired of the the years, 10, 12 years, we're not quite sure how long, the years of running from Saul in the land of Israel. He tired of that and left and went over to the land of the Philistines. And God used that relocation to protect David for over a year. Saul did stop chasing him, as he figured. Saul stopped chasing him when he left the land. And so there was some respite there and some safety. So in some ways that was a positive for David. But as we saw, the whole thought process behind that was not positive. What David was thinking about, when verse, as verse 1 revealed to us, before he fled was not good. A display of faithlessness as he considered Saul's going to triumph. The only way for me to escape is to flee from the land, to run away into a foreign land. Disappointing. The sad thing to see, but marvelously, we also saw, subtly hinted at, that the Lord did not abandon David in his faithlessness, but remained faithful to him. Kept pointing at David, kept pointing at David's line, kept talking about how the kingdom was coming through David and eventually brought the kingdom to David, which is what we see today. So last week we saw Saul, we saw David faithless and God faithful to him. But that's not how God deals with everybody. This week we see Saul faithless and God is not faithful to him. The Lord is faithful to his people and is clear and stern in judgment towards those who reject Him, towards those who are not His people. We see that in today's passage, chapter 28, where faithlessness meets tragedy in Saul. This is, this is a, a sad passage, and it's an interesting passage, because there are a number of unusual things here, which we'll need to clarify as we, as we read it and then pass back through it. But things are moving towards a a climax in this book very quickly here. We are coming down to the very end of the book. And this is the final hand of God falling on Saul in in a, a tragic and terrible way. So I'm going to read the whole chapter and then we'll pass back through it to make sure that we understand some of the interesting details before making a couple of larger observations. 1 Samuel chapter 28. 
In those days, the Philistines gathered their forces for war to fight against Israel. Achish said to David, Understand that you and your men are to go out with me in the army. David said to Achish, Very well. You shall know what your servant can do. And Achish said to David, Very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. Now, Samuel had died, and all Israel had mourned for him and buried him in Ramah, his own city. And Saul had put the mediums and the necromancers out of the land. The Philistines assembled and came and encamped at Shunem, And Saul gathered all Israel, and they encamped at Geboa. When Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid, and his heart trembled greatly. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams, or by Urim, or by prophets. Then Saul said to his servants, Seek out for me a woman who is a medium, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servant said to him, Behold, there is a medium at Endor. So Saul disguised himself and put on other garments and went, he and two men with him, and they came to the woman by night. And he said, Divine for me by a spirit, and bring up for me whomever I shall name to you. And the woman said to him, Surely you know what Saul has done, how he has cut off the mediums and the necromancers from the land. Why then are you laying a trap for my life to bring about my death? But Saul swore to her by the name of the Lord, by the Lord, as the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. Then the woman said, Whom shall I bring up for you? And he said, Bring up Samuel for me. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. And the woman said to Saul, Why have you deceived me? You are Saul. And the king said to her, Do not be afraid. What do you see? And the woman said to Saul, I see a God coming up out of the earth. And he said to her, What is his appearance? And she said, An old man is coming up, and he is wrapped in a robe. And Saul knew that it was Samuel, and he bowed with his face to the ground and paid homage. Then Samuel said to Saul, Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Saul answered, I am in great distress, for the Philistines are warring against me, and God has turned away from me and answers me no more, either by prophets or by dreams. Therefore, I have summoned you to tell me what I shall do. And Samuel said, Why then do you ask me, since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy? The Lord has done to you as he spoke by me, for the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor, David. Because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out His fierce wrath against Amalek, therefore the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your son shall be with me. The Lord will give the army of Israel also into the hand of the Philistines. Then Saul fell at once full length on the ground, filled with fear because of the words of Samuel. And there was no strength in him, for he had eaten nothing all day and all night. And the woman came to Saul, and when she saw that he was terrified, she said to him, 
Behold, your servant has obeyed you. I have taken my life in my hand and have listened to what you have said to me. Now, therefore, you also obey your servant. Let me set a morsel of bread before you and eat, that you may have strength when you go on your way. He refused and said, I will not eat. But his servants, together with the woman, urged him, and he listened to their words. So he arose from the earth and sat on the bed. Now the woman had a fattened calf in the house, and she quickly killed it. And she took flour and kneaded it and baked unleavened bread of it. And she put it before Saul and his servants, and they ate. Then they rose and went away that night. First Samuel chapter 28. The text begins with David, as we saw last week, drawn into the military service of the Philistines of, of their leader named Achish as they are preparing for a major uh, military invasion of Israel, a major attack on Israel. David had been cooperating. David had made himself a servant of Achish, and now it looks like he has a problem that he's being drawn into the service of a foreign king, told he's going to have to lift his sword against Israel, and he lift his sword against the Lord's anointed, whom he has so far been very particular not to attack. So it seems like David's in a predicament, and then we leave David entirely. And we shift to Saul. And chronologically, chapter 29 should come next. You can tell by by looking at the different campsites, chapter 29 follows right on um, this dealing with David. But it's been rearranged in the text to create a tension as we move towards the end. We alternate back and forth, David, Saul, David, Saul. And we get the two battles lined up at the very end of the book. Probably those two battles happened simultaneously. It's hard to prove that clearly, but probably they happen simultaneously, at least very close to each other. It's been rearranged here to create a climax. And here we have Saul pre-battle. The first of preliminaries. David's in the service of the Philistines. Verse 3, Samuel, you'll recall, is dead. Really dead. He's dead. We were told that before. He's dead and buried, and Saul has put the mediums and the necromancers out of the land. Mediums, so-called mediums or witches, some translations say, soothsayers, various names for people who deal with spirits, with demons and spirits of the dead. How? We don't know exactly. As you can imagine, the Bible's not really interested in helping us do that. But it happens. People with some ability somehow to communicate with demons or with real beings who have passed out of the physical realm that we can see with our eyes, but can still, they still exist out there and can be interacted with, spoken with, summoned into a meeting. Somehow through a, through a seance or by a spell or with prayers and sacrifices, in some way breaking into the spiritual realm that's all around us, the realm of the dead, by means of evil spiritual power. God forbids this in the law, in Leviticus and in Deuteronomy both, calls it an abomination and sentences it to death by stoning. God's really serious about this. So we need to think about it in this light. As a, In the words of a professor that I, I once had, he said, his words, we modern Westerners don't really believe this, but the universe is alive. By which he means, this stuff happens. 
there's a spiritual world right here. You know, we modern Westerners think that there's nothing but this. Nothing but this. But right here, right here, right there, there's another realm. A spirit realm. The universe is alive. He did not mean, and I don't mean to say that there's like the spirit of the trees or something like that, but that there are spirits, that there are demons, there are angels. People, when they die, their spirits still exist. This sort of thing is real. God did not call it an abomination and sentence it to stoning because it was harmless horseplay. Or opportunity for charlatans and con men. Because it's all fake. They're just stealing people's money. That's, that's not why he calls it an abomination and sentences it to death. It's real. This happened and happens. And God forbids people from having contact with, from breaking into that realm because of how it is that one does that by dark forces, by spiritual powers of evil, one breaks into that realm. And so to open oneself up to that and to engage in it is tremendously dangerous and destructive. He says, don't do that. Not then, don't do it now. He wrote that down in the law. Saul had read the law. And as always, Saul was concerned to have some formal appearance of of righteousness. He's a very religious man, which is not a compliment. He's a very religious man. And he read the law. And particularly in his earlier days, he was concerned to follow the law. And so he had forbid such things and had had kicked them all out of the land and had made clear we're not going to tolerate that here. And he banned that practice in Israel. So that's where we are when the Philistine hordes roll into the land, verse 5. And he sees the massive Philistine army. And then a theme of the chapter rises up. He was afraid and his heart trembled greatly. Comes back to that several times throughout the chapter. He's afraid when he sees the enemy trembles greatly, overwhelmed with fear. And so he inquires of the Lord, asking what to do. He inquires by all the ordinary accepted means. You see them there, dreams and Urim and prophets. And he hears nothing. The Lord did not answer. Still, just like we saw many chapters ago, God is done talking to Saul. Finished. And now Saul, in increasing desperation, is going to him by any way that he can think of and is hearing just silence. So he hears the silence, and in response, he seeks out a witch instead. Find me a woman who is a medium. And his servants, what do you know, know right where to find one. I know, there's one in Endor, which is a town, if you figure out on the map where these two encampments were, it's a town on the other side of the Philistine encampment. They weren't just wandering around knocking on doors asking anybody know where there's a witch. They knew and then had to go through some trouble at night in disguise as small company to go around the Philistine army to come to her. They knew right where she was. They put this stuff away, sort of. So at night, no longer robed like a king, Saul's the irony here, his kingdom's about to be stripped off of him, and so he takes off the royal robes himself and at night slinks into the den of the medium at Endor. And she senses a trap right off. 
asks him why, why this person, she doesn't know who it is, doesn't recognize him. Why are you trying to trap me? You know what Saul's done. And in a moment of, of tremendous, amazing, revealing irony, verse 10, the king of Israel swears by the Lord, as the Lord lives, I will not obey the Lord. I know what is right. I know, I'm the one who did that, but I have a need now. So here's the word of the Lord. I swear by the name of the Lord, I'm going to set it aside. That's ironic. Now call it for me, Samuel. I have a need. And Samuel comes, and again, we see these things we need to get our minds around here a little bit just to, to understand this actually happens. The witch, it says, when she sees him, she cries out with a loud voice in, in verse 12. She's shocked. She's, she's taken aback by this. Which isn't because, again, it's not because she's a charlatan and this has never happened before. As I said already, this is real. That's why God forbids it. She's known for being able to do this. She believes that she can do it. Perhaps she's shocked because she's never dipped into the dark realm and met a holy man. That might be what surprises her. Or it might be that she's shocked because she realizes who that is and who this is and what's going on and she's just, ah. But she's amazed afraid. Saul calms her down and then has a conversation with Samuel. And Samuel says, why did you call me? And he said, because God won't talk to me. So I asked you. Samuel just says, I have, I have nothing else to say other than what God already said to you through me with a little more terrible news on the end. Yes, as has been the case now for 25 or 30 years, He's silent towards you because you said, I'm done listening to you. Remember Amalek? Remember before that when I told you to wait and I would come and offer the sacrifices and you couldn't wait, so you did it yourself anyway. And then I told you through the, the Lord told you through me to, to wipe out Amalek and you thought better. God stopped dealing with you. Yes, He's silent. And has become your enemy, it says. It's become your enemy. He's taking the kingdom out of your hand tomorrow, in fact. It has come to it tomorrow. He takes the kingdom away from you and gives it to one better than you, to David. And by this time tomorrow, you'll be with me in the realm of the dead. And you'll stand before God like me, but not like me. You'll stand before God with Him as your enemy. And Saul hears that, and it terrifies him. It crushes him in verses 20 and 21. He, fell, he falls down full length on the ground, filled with fear, it says. He's been fasting all day, attempting to manipulate God, probably. He's been fasting all day, so he has no, no physical strength in him, and he is terrified, it says. The woman sees him in terror. And ironically then, the witch is the one who comforts him and feeds him. And after he's eaten, he goes out into the night. We are told again that it was night. He goes out into the night to his tragic destiny. That's chapter 28. Let's unpack that now with a couple of observations. Recognizing the first one's longer because it's dealing with Saul and 
I'll say Saulism. This is about Saul as all of the ages fall on him. And it's tragic. So here's the first point that we need to think about. First observation, consider the reality of dreadful God-forsakenness. Consider this reality. There's something dreadful here. God-forsakenness. To be forsaken by God, abandoned, left, rejected. The passage shows us the fear and the dread in Saul. Several times. In the beginning of verse 5, he's afraid, and we could think he's just afraid because there's battle in front of him. But in verse 15, he clarifies as he tells Samuel, I am greatly distressed. Why? Because there's a battle coming and God won't talk to me. That's the problem. There's battle, but not just battle. It's that I'm in battle. I'm facing this great danger, this threat, all by myself. And try as I might, I call out to Him. I reach out. I ask. I speak. Lead me. Tell Him what to do. Incline my heart with a dream. Speak with a prophetic utterance. Should I fight here? Should I fight there? Should I stand? Should I run? What should I do? And nothing. Nothing but frightening silence because it's coming home to him. I am without God alone in the world. Here in my moment of need, I have been forsaken. I cannot find him. And then, later, 20 and 21, why is he filled with fear at that point? Even worse fear. Filled with it, terrified, it says. Because of the words of Samuel. It's after Samuel spoke that he's again in 2021 undone. Because what Samuel said to him was worse than you think, Saul. Worse than silence and abandonment of no word. There now is a word from the man of God. And that word says he actually hasn't totally left you. He is still a companion to you. As your enemy. Oh. Worse than God completely leaving you all to yourself is for Him to be present as a foe. The Lord has turned from you. He has become your enemy. Verse 16. He has torn the kingdom from you and holds you in His hand and tomorrow is giving you into the hand of the Philistines and you're going to come to be with me before this omnipotent sovereign tomorrow. Oh. You rejected the word of the Lord, and now His fierce wrath awaits you. You who consult demons and swear on my name to disobey my name. You who for a decade hunt to kill my innocent anointed servant. You who slaughter my priests in Nob and all of their families. You who know better than me and are wiser than me and tell the priest to shut up because you've made up your mind as what you're going to do. Well, I have made up my mind what I'm going to do. And tomorrow you will stand in front of me. Oh, oh, that should fall on us. It is the greatest tragedy in all of the creation that a creature realizes I am undone, I am alone, and I face the one who has utter authority whom I have fiercely provoked. God forsakenness is the greatest of all terrors. 
Oh, that we would see all of the ages are falling on Saul here. And that you would realize this is in the Bible for you. Only four people on earth know this happened. Probably three of them died the next day. And the fourth one had no motive to talk. But it's in the Bible. God inspired someone to write it down, not so that Saul could read about it later, but so that you could. So that you could have read in front of you, spoken about in front of you, this greatest of all tragedies, God before a person withdrawing His hand. No, in fact, bringing His hand. Oh, men and women and teenagers, kids, people. This is the most dreadful of all realities and it is here to warn us that you may read it and see the dread of having the Lord forsake a person to no longer speak to, to no longer speak to hold out hope, but only to speak pronouncing judgment. Hear this and be warned and think about it very carefully and very clearly. I say very carefully and very clearly because there are two things that we need to think about very carefully here. They're kind of opposite concerns. If, if you read this and if you see it and if it comes to you and it hits you, then there are two things to process. If, if it, I should say as an aside, if it doesn't, if, if I say that and it strikes you and you think, may God help you. Because this is reality. This blue plastic chairs, a gym floor with, with red vinyl on it is not reality. There's a spirit realm right here to which you are going. All of this will be rolled up like a garment and will go away and He will make all things new and you will stand in front of Him. May this strike you. May God give grace that it, it appears important as it is. And if it does, then there are two things to consider that are, that are opposite. that need to be thought about very carefully. Some are tempted to say, to assume themselves or for others, there is always tomorrow. There is always another day. Yeah, that's important. Boy, that, that would be awful to be forsaken by God and to have Him no longer with me, but, it, but as my settled and decided enemy and only putting on me judgment and condemnation, that would be terrible. I should deal with that tomorrow. Be warned. Hardening of heart is a reality. If you would have told Saul... Back in chapter 10, when Samuel first met him, do you remember if you were here all the way back there where he's looking for donkeys in chapter 9 and Samuel brings him along and says, I'm going to make you king. The Lord has said he wants you to sit on the throne for some time. Who, me? Are you kidding? Well, who am I? Which again says nothing about his salvation status but says something about his humility. I, I can't be king. 
And he holds his peace when people oppose him and ridicule him. If you told Saul back then, at the end of your life, you're going to be flat terrified on the floor of a witch after just having consulted the dead and remembering the sla- how you slaughtered all the priests, etc. Oh, are you out of your mind? No way, no way, no way, no way. Way. It happened. Hardening is a reality. We walk through life day by day facing A or B, A or B. And when you take A, then you've got a different set of A or B. When you take A, you've got a different set of A or B. And something rubs on your heart and a callus develops and a hardening comes upon you. And people saw reach points in time when they can conceive of turning to God, but it's not happening. Now, if... If we could get behind it and see things from God's perspective, which we never can, Saul had a very unique opportunity. He had a prophet speak to him. That doesn't happen to us. Saul can get behind the reality and know what, some of what God's doing here in, in his life and in the kingdom of Israel. He knows more and knows what has happened and how long it's been going on and why. We, we don't know those things about ourselves. All we know is that today I face A or B. And tomorrow I will face A or B. And I will face A or B. And hardening, men and women, is a reality. If you choose against and against and against and against, over there, choosing against becomes much more likely than choosing for. You have a habit. You have a pattern. Insensitivity to sin. On the... A, a disassociation with God, it seems much more unattractive, much more unreliable in your own way, in your own plan, your own pattern seems better and wise and trustworthy. And if not safe, safer. Hardening happens. Do not assume for yourself or for others that tomorrow is just as likely as today to come and to be just as likely of an opportunity for you to turn to the Lord. You don't know that. Hardening is reality. Today is the day of repentance. Do not harden your hearts one more day presuming upon tomorrow. It may not come. But repentance is always the right answer. And that's the second thing we need to consider carefully. The first thing we need to consider carefully, when this strikes you and and you see God-forsakenness as, oh, so tragic, the first thing you need to think about is, I should not presume I'll deal with that next week. And the second thing you should not presume is, it's too late for me and I have no opportunity to deal with it now. Repentance is always the right answer. Beware of the evil thought whispered in your ear. There is no hope for you. You are too far gone. There is someone who whispers that in your ear. There's no hope for you. Don't bother thinking about turning to God. He won't receive you no matter how you come. It's too late for you. There is someone who whispers that in your ear. It is not the Lord
God always calls for repentance. We must be clear about that. Even when He doesn't specifically call for repentance, He's calling for repentance. Nineveh knew that. Didn't Nineveh? Jonah knew that. Didn't he? Remember the story? That's why Jonah's hacked off. He's not hacked off the message explicitly. I'm more than happy to say 40 days more and you're done. He's hacked off at the message implied, which he understands and Nineveh understands, and they respond to God with what is always the right answer, repentance, sackcloth, and ashes. Oh, God, would you forgive? Oh, God, oh, God, oh, God, oh, God. Like I knew it. That's that's Jonah's response, right? He wants him destroyed. He knows. Nineveh knows. You should know the right answer is always, the right response is always repentance. So when, if this falls on you and you realize, oh, the ages are collapsing on me as the hand of God reaches out, the right answer is not, oh, too late. No. Sackcloth and ashes, repent. And the Bible promises that every single person, every man, woman, child, teenager, young or old, who comes to God repentant, humble, broken, submitted, laid down life, your wish, Lord, I follow you. I come to you through the blood of Christ only in the way that you prescribe. My life surrendered. Every single person who comes in like that finds mercy. Every single person who comes to him like that finds mercy. Do not be deceived into thinking you cannot because it's just too late. Somebody whispers that to you and it's not God. Of course, the big question is, but will you? Because I just said, come and everyone who comes like that finds mercy. That's different than actually coming and finding mercy. Hearing me say that and understanding it is different than actually doing it. So I plead with you and command you in the name of the Lord, repent. Turn. Today, not tomorrow. I don't know if you can tomorrow. Hardening is reality. I don't know if you can next week. Hardening is reality. There were a whole bunch of people who watched the door of the ark shut solid and wondered, what on earth is that about? For years, the door was open. And then it wasn't. And then the rain fell. Today is the day of repentance. Tomorrow may not be. I do not know what God's larger plan is. I do not know if you will live to see tomorrow or if I'll live to see tomorrow. I don't know if you live to see tomorrow if there is any opportunity for you tomorrow. Hardening is reality. The Bible just says, repent today. Surrender 
everything that you are to Him right now. Or face forever God as enemy. It is the horror of all horrors, God-forsakenness. And the wonder is, the wonder is that God-forsakenness This should leave us breathless. You probably know what I'm going to say next. And, or something along the lines I'm going to speak next. It just stop with it hanging there for a second. Forsaken for sin. Saul, forsaken for his sin. No hope. People, forsaken for their sin. No hope. What did God do about that? Who did He forsake for sin to do something about that? You know that's going. Does that also land on you as precious and marvelous? Oh, it should. So here's the second observation, which is one of hope. Consider the wonder of Christ forsaken for the sins of His people. Consider the wonder of Christ forsaken for the sins of His people. And let me back into this observation, starting with with some hints from the shape of the text. And I have to say hints, because to say the text teaches this and that would be too much. What the text is getting at is condemnation falling on Saul and him being taken off the throne so that it can be given to David. That's, that's what's directly in line here. But there's something hinted at here, something alluded to, a resemblance that is intended, I think, to hint at and to make a connection in your mind. Let's see, let's see if it makes a connection in your mind. Verse 17, Samuel brings up what he had told Saul many years before. He's torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor. Here the neighbor's named, given it to David. So it's all come to a head now. Saul and his pride rejecting God's rule, rejecting God's ruler, this neighbor, this one even from his own table, even from his own house, one that he calls a son, one who's married to his daughter, one that he's close to. Kingdoms being given to one to whom he is close. And after the despair of Samuel's words, this evening is all sealed with a quick meal of fattened calf and unleavened bread. Set before his servants and they eat. Last verse, they arose and went away that night. Does that make you think of anything? A night with a meal on the eve of a great step forward in God's kingdom plan. A night with a quick meal, a fattened animal kept in the house, unleavened bread. The night before a big step forward in God's kingdom plan. should make you think of something, something reaching back in Israel's history, something reaching forward, which are the same thing. 
think we're supposed to have laid here in our minds a pattern so that when the Last Supper gets eaten, the celebration of the Passover meal, we say, hmm, interesting. Here on the eve of a big step forward in the kingdom, when the kingdom is going to be given over to the son of David and he is going to be enthroned tomorrow, here one opponent sits down at a meal, fattened animal and unleavened bread. Hinted at, alluded to. Not, I don't think clearly taught, not the main point, but alluded to. An exodus from Egypt, Pharaoh displaced as a new king is enthroned. Jesus celebrating a Passover, the Last Supper, about to become king. I think there's an allusion there. Or to keep in this book of 1 Samuel, I think that finally we are seeing Hannah. You flip way back to the beginning. Hannah's chapter 2 prophecy. Take a big step forward. How long ago? 80? 100 years? Samuel was just born. Samuel's dead now for some time. Chapter 2, verse 9. The mother of Samuel said, He will guard, talking about the Lord, the feet of His faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them He will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to His King. This was before there was a king. He will give strength to His King and exalt the power of His anointed. And here on this night, Hannah can say, Amen. There's an illusion here, some connection. But then we move to the New Testament. The illusion passes away and we are explicitly taught about the great son of David who was forsaken for sin. I think there's some tracks laid here. When we come to the New Testament, we find it explicit. Do you realize the glory of what Jesus is? As all the ages fall crashing on Saul... And if you get into that and see, that's me. Who is Saul? But an older representation of this. That's me. That's you. God, your enemy. You, forsaken for your sin. And the only out, the only solution to God as enemy is to find God again somehow as friend. And the only way that can happen is by God Himself stepping in and saying, I will take on Myself My own wrath in place of pouring it on you. I will forsake My own Son for your sin, that you might be accepted, that you might be welcomed as not drawn near as a foe condemned, but drawn near as a child embraced. Jesus is a stunning provision for us in our sin that God would send His Son specifically to lift Him up and turn His face away from Him and fall, My God, My God, why have You forsaken Me? And silence as He pours the ages out on that one instead of on you. Bless God. Bless God. How can you sit there on your hands? Bless God. 
Now, I, I, I can't see all your eyes even, so I don't know how you sit. But bless God for Christ forsaken for your sin. This is the grace of God. That Christ can save sinners who don't deserve it. That Christ can restore to us God as friend, God as lover, God as companion for good, a present help in time of need. Now, at the judgment and forever. Christian, this is solid fuel for joy in your heart if you would realize what God has done for you in Christ fearfulness and forlornness and distress and crushed and downcast and terrified and broken and mourning is for Saul, but you are with David. Why so downcast, O your soul? Put your hope in God. Which is not to deny all the heartache and the heartbreak of life. It is to supersede all of that with something superior. We are a people who are most fortunate that there is a, a way that God can be your friend. This God, the maker of heaven and earth, the one who is the embodiment of all good, is your friend. You in your sin. Oh. Do you walk through life gripped by that? Dominated by it? The man who just won the lottery skips down the street. Forgotten all his other troubles. Forgotten his neighbor doesn't like him and forgotten the sprinklers that don't work. There might be other things he has not forgotten. But of course, I'm just talking about money. You now just got holes in it. But you know what it's like to have your mind filled with something that's, that's delightful and it, it, it conquers everything else, it pushes it all to the back. And that's just trivial stuff. Do you walk through life with something significant? This. God in Christ reaching down to you and promising, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. Never. Not now, not ever. Why so downcast then, O your soul? This is a God... We far too often, and I mean that we, we far too often skip on by and do not see the spiritual realm right next to us, all around us, and realize that it is real and it is everlasting. And in it you, if you are in Christ, if you are in Christ, in it you are enthroned with Him, reigning 
Ephesians says that you've been, you've been set up with Christ, raised and enthroned with Him, and you reign. Think about it. If you are a Christian, you are a Christian. If you are a Christian, you are a Christian. You are a son or a daughter of God Almighty Himself. An heir of this kingdom. And he is certainly removing Saul here and certainly setting up David. The kingdom is coming. It has come. It is coming. You have received the down payment. You will receive all of the inheritance. Rejoice, Christian, that God the Father did not forsake you but instead forsook His Son for you. That you might receive a kingdom that is not perishing. You are so fortunate. And He is so good. Let's pray. Oh God, bless Your name for Your goodness to us. Bless your name. You found us wallowing in our sin, in rebellion. And you graciously in might saved us. Well, perhaps there are some here right now who have not yet been saved. Or perhaps there are some here who are saved but are walking a path away from you. I don't know. You do. I pray that you would pour out on them an earnestness that today they would turn. Call them in. And for your people here, Lord, sing over them. Sing over them. Cast all of their anxieties and troubles under a new light. Cast all of it, Lord, under under a sweet bright, delightful, rejoicing, hope-filled, gracious, everlasting, loving hand. Let them see it all under that kind of a hand. Speak to your people now, Lord, as they come to you and deal with you. Speak to them hope, encouragement, conviction to draw them away from sin. Thank you for Christ. 
Thank you for bringing us the kingdom. Draw your people to you in love, I pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.